Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. As we get going this morning, um, I'm cognizant that this may be another uh, heavy sermon for some of us. We're going to be starting the Ten Plagues uh, this morning, so I thought I'd at least open with a lighter joke. Um, There was a story about a disobedient young uh, boy who was nevertheless clever and asked his mother, Mom, you wouldn't punish me for something I didn't do, would you? And she said, of course not, sweetie, why? He said, good, because I didn't do any of my homework or chores. This morning, God is going to punish Pharaoh for something he didn't do. Namely, he didn't let God's people go as God had commanded him to. So last week in Exodus, if you were here with us, we witnessed God's plan of deliverance for his people Israel, which is going to culminate in their promised redemption a few weeks from now on Easter when they cross the Red Sea. But before God can make good on his promise to save Israel, he must first make good on his promise to judge Egypt. And he's going to do that 10 times over, these 10 plagues, so many that we can't fit them all into one sermon. And so you're just going to have to come back next Sunday if you're a glutton for punishment. But what we need to see this morning is that the plagues aren't just punishment, right? Hopefully, jokes aside, you're not coming because you love to see God punish people. What we need to see is just how long-suffering our God is, how patient God is in his mercy towards sinners like Pharaoh and like you and me. God gives Pharaoh here not one, not two, but ten chances to repent, turn, change, for the same reason that Israel has been in uh, Egypt for 400 years now. Remember, God announced to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, God allowed his people, Israel, to be in slavery because the Amorites, this people group who occupied the promised land from the 19th to 15th centuries B.C., had not yet filled up their sin. He wanted to give them every possible opportunity to repent, to turn, and be saved. It's the same reason, by the way, that Jesus has not yet returned to earth and fulfilled his promise to come back and make all things new. We as believers, we wait for that. We we pray. we're, We're excited for that. And yet... 2 Peter 3 reminds us why he hasn't done it yet. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is waiting for more to turn from sin to him. Trust in Jesus by faith and be saved. God is patient and merciful. And yet, as we will also see this morning, God is also holy and he's just. And one day, God's patience will run out for all of us. So God's word warns us, do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience. Don't presume on it, for God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repent while there's still time. And that is the most important of all these messages for the next two weeks and all 10 of these plagues is that we must repent of our sins, throw ourselves on God's mercy that he now offers us through his son, Jesus, lest we too should perish. 
And so if you hear nothing else this morning, next Sunday, every Sunday, you need to hear that, God's gospel invitation to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus for salvation. And as we will see, each of these ten plagues is going to highlight a different facet, a different nuance of that gospel message. And each of the first four plagues that we're going to look at this morning, by the way, if you see in your bulletins there, we, 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 I'm, we're, I ran out of time. We're not going to have time for, uh, to get to the fifth plague. We'll save that one for next week as well. But each of these four plagues that we'll see this morning actually conveys two gospel sub-themes, two blanks in your bulletins. So I've got eight points for you total. Eight gospel principles with four accompanying gospel applications or exhortations for us. Lots to get to. Before we do, let's go to the Lord once again in prayer, asking him to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now, would you illuminate our minds and hearts to hear your word? to receive your word. God, as we submit ourselves under the authority of your word, would you use it to soften, to break hard hearts, that you might rebuild them again, renew them, take out a heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. Would you, would you redeem, save someone's heart even this morning? We know that you can do it. You you can change even the hardest of hearts. Would you do that this morning for your glory and our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Plague number one, let's read it together first. Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. I have uh, words on the screen for uh, all of these, but... Hope you can follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible at the info bar after the service. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go then to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all the pools of water, so they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they couldn't drink the water of the Nile. 
gospel principles, number one and two, we see here that God always gives sinners ample warning and God never hardens a person's heart against their will. God warns us, but ultimately God grants us our will. First, he warns us. God warns Pharaoh ten times here. Actually, it's more than that because remember, he got the preview plague last week when Moses' staff turned into a serpent. And not only does each one of these plagues serve as a warning and a chance for Pharaoh to repent, but as we're going to see, most of these plagues actually include their own warning before the plague itself. And so like here, Moses went to Pharaoh in the morning before God had turned the water into blood to warn him about that coming plague, which was itself a warning. So twice the warnings with each plague, potentially. God gave Pharaoh every possible opportunity to repent. That's the point. But verse 22, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen. He didn't take even this to heart. Instead, we hear Pharaoh hardened his heart, his own heart. That's going to become even clearer in plagues number 2, 4, and 7. So chapter 8, verse 15, verse 32, chapter 9, verse 34, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time also, Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart. There's an active nature. Pharaoh is the subject of the verb. He's the one doing the hardening in, in all these passages. Now, last week we discussed God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which is equally true and which is emphasized in plagues number 6, 8, 9, and 10. Chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 20 and 27. Chapter 11, verse 10. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So how do we put these two things together? Well, as Christopher Wright attempts to explain for us, there is a mystery in holding together the sovereignty of God and human moral responsibility for our own willed choices. And yet, he says, we must insist that the Bible affirms both frequently and unequivocally, however difficult that may be for us to reconcile them in our own human logic. The casual reader's moral anxiety stems from imagining that if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then the poor man had no meaningful choice. He was merely doing what he had been programmed to do. How then was he to blame? But, right says, the protest, it's not my fault, God made me do it. Is, will always be just as false on the lips of any sinner as it would have been on Pharaoh's lips. For the narrative works very hard to make it repeatedly clear, beyond any doubt, that Pharaoh was no puppet on a string here, manipulated by some malevolent deity. No, his own sin was Pharaoh's undoing. Translation, God never hardens a sinner's heart against their will. And so you and I need to get out of our minds this morning, this picture of hell being filled with penitent, remorseful sinners all begging for God's forgiveness. That is not how the Bible portrays hell. No, the Bible says hell is filled with sinners whose hearts only grow harder and more stubbornly wicked and rebellious in their opposition against God each passing day of eternity. As C.S. Lewis observed, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will ultimately say, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. No soul that is seriously and constantly desiring life with God will ever miss it 
For those who seek, find. To those who knock, the door is opened. I received an email from uh, a woman named Diana last uh, Friday before last who's been watching our sermons online. <clears throat> she wrote, Hello, Pastor. I have a question that has been seriously threatening my faith, and I'm trying to find an answer that would let me keep believing. The problem comes from three things I've been taught growing up in church. One, we are all born sinners. Two, salvation is a gift from God and cannot come from ourselves. My church teaches that if God has predestined you for salvation, you will be called to it. And if God has not predestined you for salvation, there's nothing you can do to move yourselves toward it. And three, God loves everyone. She says, I don't understand how all three of these things can be true. Why would God allow someone to be born knowing that they need salvation but are not predestined for salvation and thus will be tormented for all eternity if he really loves them? How can God send anyone to hell knowing that there is nothing they can do to save themselves without his work? If all this is true, then it would suggest God is simply cruel and I think I would rather live in a world without God altogether. This question weighs heavily on my soul, and I'm becoming worried that God has simply not predestined me for salvation. And so she sent that uh, Friday before last, and then last Sunday, you remember, I preached about God's hardening, uh, Pharaoh's heart, and we looked at Romans 9 together. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and God hardens whomever he wills. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so before I had even read that first email from Diana, the Friday email, she sent me a second email last Sunday afternoon that read, Hi again. By God's sovereignty, I think my question was answered today. Thank you for clearing things up. I am now certain that God has created me as a vessel for wrath, and I exist only to prove his power and damnation. I was not given the capacity to love him in spite of that, and so God must have hardened my heart. I'm pretty bummed out that I will spend the rest of eternity in hell, but at least I don't have to keep trying to earn his love. And so I replied to Diana this Monday, mainly, offering to pray with her, talk with her in person. Uh, just in case you're listening this morning, second service, Diana, I'll tell you the same thing I said in first service. In case anyone else needs to hear this this morning. I'll just offer three replies to what she said there, two affirmations and one rebuttal. First of all, you're right in all three of your affirmations, we are all born sinners, as Psalm 51.5 says. Salvation is a free gift, which must come from God, Romans 6.23 says. And God does love everyone, John 3.16. Second, Diana, you are also right about God's sovereignty, both over salvation as well as over sermon timing. It's no accident that I preached last Sunday's message when I did, God wanted you to hear it. But third, you are wrong to claim that God is cruel 
and wrong to say that he has not given you the capacity to love him back. It's not true. Far from being cruel, God has freely, generously, mercifully, lovingly given us the solution for our sin problem. He has sent us a Savior and his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And we do have the ability to love and choose and cherish Jesus. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And so yes, God had to love us first. It is God's love that empowers and compels our love. God had to make the first move, but he's already made it. God's already made the first move in sending his son Jesus for us. That was his move. That was God's proof of his love for you and me. And now God calls us, in fact, he commands us to love him in response. But love is a choice. Anyone who's ever loved anyone or anything knows this. Love is a free choice. God has already made his choice, and so now the choice is yours. This morning, will you love him in return? Yes, you can choose to hate God. You can harden your heart this morning and hate God and blame him for allowing anyone to reject his gracious gift of Jesus. Or you can thank him and praise him and worship him that he would allow any of us to receive this undeserved, amazing gift of grace. And maybe that, Diana, maybe that is why God in his sovereignty had you hear this message last Sunday to remind you that you can't earn his love at all. If you've spent your life thus far trying to earn it, please don't spend the rest of your life continuing to try to earn his love. You won't do it. You'll never earn it, friends. None of you will ever earn God's love. You have to receive it as freely given, undeserved, It's a gift. But make no mistake this morning, the choice is yours. Even if it is God's choice, even if God does predestine you one way or the other, you and I can't possibly know one way or the other, so quit trying to read God's mind this morning and make up your own mind instead to believe. That is your choice. That is your agency. God is giving you the ability to believe this morning. Whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish, will have everlasting life. Trust in Jesus this morning and you will be saved. You can choose him today. Hebrews 3.15 says, today, if you hear his voice, if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your, your heart a holy discontentment this morning, Don't don't shut his voice out. Listen, hear his voice, and do not harden your heart, Hebrews 3 says. And so that's my first personal application. Gospel exhortation for us this morning is simply that. Listen. Verse 22 says that Pharaoh wouldn't listen. Hebrews 3 exhorts us to hear God's voice. And what is he saying? What is he screaming at us this morning? It's the same thing he was screaming at Pharaoh in all ten of these plagues. I'm God, you're not, you're a sinner, therefore you need a Savior, so trust in Jesus. That's, that's it. I mean, it's that simple. That's, that's what we call the gospel in the church. It is God's salvation invitation to you. Will you listen and respond this morning? If you will, you will be saved. 
If you won't, if you reject God's gracious invitation, you will have no one to blame this morning but yourself. Because God never hardens a heart against a person's will. Do not harden your heart this morning. Plague number two and gospel principles number three and four. God invites us to cry out to him and God delights to show us compassion. We read on seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, here's another warning. Behold, I will plague all your country, this time, number two, with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into your house and your bedroom, your bed and the house of your servants, your people, your ovens, your kneading bowls. The frogs shall, sh- shall come up on you and on your people, all your servants, be covered in frogs. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with the staff over the rivers and the canals, the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up. They covered the land of Egypt, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and then I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to him, Be pleased to command me. When? When am I to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses be left only in the Nile? In verse 10, Pharaoh said, Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses, your servants, your people. It should be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, courtyards, and fields. They gathered them in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart again and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. There is so much going on here, but the two most important takeaways that we need to see here are that God wants us to cry out to him because God loves to show us mercy. Even those of us who are least deserving, even the pharaohs among us. God could have told Pharaoh here, hey, how about you let my people go like like I told you to? And then maybe we'll talk about backing off the plague. But God hears Moses' cry here on Pharaoh's behalf and God shows him compassion. Because God delights to show us mercy, even when, especially when we're those who are least deserving. Because here's the thing, the less we deserve it, the more glory God gets from doing the saving, in spite of you. Jesus told a parable about that once. He said there were two debtors, one who owed the creditor $5,000, the other owed him $50,000. Creditor forgave both their debts. Jesus asked, which one do you think will love the creditor more? If you get pulled over on the way home today for speeding, and the cop graciously lets you off with a warning, 
Are you going to be more grateful if you were going five miles per hour over the speed limit or if you were going 35 miles per hour? If you're just going five miles per hour, some of you might be indignant that you were pulled over at all. I'm wasting my time. Who does this guy think he is? Can I just tell you, some of you this morning, if you're really honest, you don't think you deserve a ticket from God? Some of you think, I'm mostly a good person. And okay, if I speed a little bit every once in a while, it's like five miles an hour over. God is going to understand. God's going to let it slide. Surely no one's perfect, right? God must grade on a curve. Here's what God's word says, friends. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. If you break just one of God's commandments just one time in your whole life, you're just as guilty as if you had broken them all. Because any sin against a perfectly holy God deserves eternal punishment. It's not about how badly you broke the law. It's about whose law you broke. That's the thing. There's no such thing as a $5,000 debt. All our debts are infinite. And praise God, Jesus paid it all on the cross. Because God, our Heavenly Father, is pleased to show us compassion. Even the Pharaohs. God declares it in Ezekiel 33:11. He says, "Behold, I have no pleasure in the death even of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live." So God says, "Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die?" But see, that's the problem with Pharaoh here. Pharaoh cries out, but he doesn't turn. He doesn't turn. There are three problems actually with Pharaoh's version of repentance here. For those listening on audio only, I'm using repentance in scare quotes, the fingers in the air. First problem with Pharaoh's repentance. He doesn't cry out for himself. Rather, he asks Moses to do it for him. Philip Ryken notes, this shows us how much a person can learn about God without ever coming to him for salvation personally. Pharaoh knew that God was both creator and judge. Pharaoh recognized the power of God's name and believed that he could answer prayer, but he did not know God as his own Savior and Lord. Quite literally, the man didn't have a prayer. Second, Pharaoh made the wrong request. Rather than asking God to take away his sins, Pharaoh asked God to take away the frogs. Pharaoh wanted relief from the punishment of sin without being willing to repent of the sin itself. And lastly, when, God, when, when does Pharaoh want this relief? Verse 10, tomorrow. It's, it's comical. This man is up to his neck in frogs, covered in frogs is the picture. Yet he is sitting there in his palace, laying there, frogs all in his bed, trying to convince himself yeah, it, it's not so bad yet. I, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Friends, how often do we do this? We laugh at Pharaoh. How often do we do this with our sin, with our repentance? I'll get around to it tomorrow. I'll apologize to my spouse tomorrow after the fight kind of blows over. I, I just need, I, I need to sleep on it. I'll pick up my Bible tomorrow. I'll, I'll delete that app. I'll... I'll block that website. I'll quit porn tomorrow. I'll trust God. I'll quit worrying. I'll quit living in fear and anxiety 
tomorrow. Friends, the Bible says if you hear God's voice today, don't harden your heart. Repent today. Truly repent. Pharaoh's repentance proved three things, that he had no relationship with God, that he had no remorse for sin, and he has no urgency to change. That's what he proves here with his version of repentance. No relationship with God. Someone else pray for me. No remorse for sin. I just want to be freed from the the consequences of my sin. And no urgency to change. I'll do it tomorrow. May that not be true of our repentance church. May it not be said of us. Rather, let us confess, cry out to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, asking him to take away not just the punishment of your sin, but the sin itself, because we ought to love God enough to hate our sin, and we want to live lives that are holy and pleasing to him today. We don't want to wait till tomorrow. May we not be content to wait, to get right with God. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Confess and truly repent, which leads us to plague number three in principles five and six. God will punish idolatry and his power is incomparable. Read in chapter 8 now, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand, and with his staff he struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts this time to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, look, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, and he would not listen even to them as the Lord had said. Two main points stand out here. God is going to punish idolatry, first of all. See, the plagues weren't just God's judgment on the Egyptians. Numbers 33 verse 4 tells us on their gods Yahweh executed judgments. Each one of these plagues was God's direct personal attack on a different false deity worshipped by the Egyptians. Last week when Moses, his staff turned into a serpent and swallowed up the magician snakes, it was on the goddess Wajet who was idolized in the form of a cobra and and worn on the crowns of pharaohs and worshipped especially by them for their power. With the first plague this morning, Yahweh attacks the god Hapi, god of the Nile. Tony Morita explains the Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. The Nile was responsible for transportation, irrigation, drinking water, and food. This type of catastrophe today would be similar to cutting off all oil supplies, the stock market collapsing, drinking water being contaminated, and having no food in the grocery store all at once. I think worse than COVID. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile then as their creator and sustainer and personified them in various deities. At least three deities were associated with the Nile, but the most important was Hapi, the god of the flood, a fertility god. The idea was that the annual flooding of the Nile gave birth to Egypt. Egypt got its, its creation, its birth out of 
this god. With the second plague, Yahweh judged the goddess Heket. James Boyce explains the goddess Heket was always pictured with the head of a frog. Therefore, the frog was sacred in all of Egypt. It could not be killed. So the Egyptians here are forced to loathe the very symbols of their depraved worship. And when the frogs died, their decaying bodies must have turned the towns and countrysides into a stinking horror, just stepping on squishing, oozing frogs everywhere. The third plague was God's judgment against the earth god named Geb. The fourth plague was directed against Beelzebub, which means the lord of the flies, protector and guardian of their fields. Yahweh is showing them who the true lord of the flies is. And God after God, we'll meet the remaining six gods next week. But the point is clear in all of it. And underneath all of it, for Pharaoh, was the idolatry of self. More than, more than any of it was the idol of self. Tony Morita explains, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh had the power to maintain order in the cosmos, a principle they called ma'at. But in, in these plagues, God was exposing Pharaoh's impotence, his utter inability to hold things together. The plagues then are an inversion of the creation account. Instead of order out of chaos, there is disorder produced from order here. Instead of man being formed out of the dust of the earth in order to have dominion over the animals and establish order, now we get bugs being formed out of the dust to rule over us in total chaos. It's decreation. And so God is saying, Pharaoh, you are not the one who maintains order in the universe. I am. And if I were to remove my sustaining hand, my little finger, for just one minute around here, you're going to see just how unable you are to hold things together. And that's the second principle here. God's power is incomparable. God can do more with his little finger than all the rest of us combined. And as we've seen, Satan does have power. Sin has real power in this world. The magicians turn their staffs into serpents too. They turn water to blood in the first plague. They even conjured up more frogs in the second plague. But notice, notice they could, all they could do was make the situation worse. Right? It's more humor. And that's, but that's all that sin ever does, isn't it? Sin just makes things worse. It might have power, but it's destructive power. Satan can't create, he can't produce, he can't bring life, he can only destroy. Jesus came, he said he came only to, to destroy. And even then, Satan has his limits. Satan is not omnipotent, he is not all-powerful, and this third plague proves it. This is the first one where Pharaoh's magicians try and they're unable to recreate the gnats. They're out of their depth now, so much so that they, they're forced to admit to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this, this has to be from God. No, no magic tricks recreate this one. Now, before we laugh at these ancient, you know, silly Egyptians for worshiping a river, snakes, frogs, the earth, we need to ask ourselves, are you and I really all that different? We've got plenty of idols, plenty of false gods today, don't we? We've got the God of money. We've got the God of stuff. We've got the God of entertainment. The God of popularity. The God of sex. The God of politics. Gods, I should say. Some of us worship Mother Earth just like they did. 
or we worship the God of country or the God of family. I mean, we've got all, all sorts of gods, a veritable plethora, our own pantheon of gods. But underneath all of it, friends, we need to see just as was true for Pharaoh is our idol of self. That's a mirror. It's not going to reflect for you, unfortunately. <laughs> Should have brought one up for you, a mirror, the God of self. We worship at the altar of self. And perhaps God is allowing your world this morning to feel like it's spinning out of control in order to remind you, like he did Pharaoh, that you are not the one who maintains order in the universe. That that is a job that's way out of your pay grade. So if you are trying to do that, if you're tired this morning of carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, hear Jesus's kind, gentle invitation to you this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest for your weary soul. Because I'm the one who really can, who has the power to hold all the universe together. He's got the whole world. Right. And he's good at it. He's good at being God, and you and I are not. So let him be. Let him be God. For by him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. He is creator and sustainer, and he's good. What's our job? Our job is to repent. Repent of our idolatry. To turn from our worship of all these lesser, false, imposter gods vying for our attention and our hearts. Most of all, the God of self. Turn from our self-centeredness and trust in Jesus instead. Repent and turn back that our sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, his son Jesus. Finally, number four. God offers his people grace, but we must come on God's terms. We must come on God's terms to receive his grace. We read in verses 20 through 32, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes to the water. Say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you. And your servants and people and in your houses and the houses of the Egyptians should be filled with swarms of flies, also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of all the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people, Pharaoh. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into the servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. 
For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go. Sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I'll plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh and his servants and his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. You're starting to see how, how merciful God is, how patient God is, long-suffering. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. God offers us grace time and time and time, chance after chance. God offers us grace, friends, but we must come on God's terms Philip Ryken explains, in the plagues, God treated his own people completely differently here than the Egyptians. The Israelites didn't get eaten up by flies. They didn't lose their livestock. They weren't afflicted with boils, plague six. Their crops weren't destroyed by hail and locusts. Their sons weren't taken by the angel of death, and they didn't drown in the depths of the sea. Why did God make this distinction? Obviously, he says, Pharaoh got exactly what he deserved. The question, though, is what was it about the Israelites that secured their salvation? The Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. As the story continues, we're going to discover that the Israelites were a fractious, rebellious, idolatrous people who deserved to be judged every bit as much as the Egyptians did. So why did God save them? The answer, very simply, is grace. It's grace. God's free undeserved gift. The people of God are saved not through any merit of their own, but by the sovereign purpose of God's grace. And friends, what does that kind of lavish, undeserved, marvelous, infinite grace, what, did it, what ought it to inspire within us and require of us? Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. God's grace compels us to follow him, to trust him, to live for him, to lay down our lives and wholly surrender to God. Pharaoh offers the Israelites a compromise here in verse 25. He says, go sacrifice within the land, but as Riken notes again, staying in Egypt would violate God's command. He told him to go out into the wilderness. When it comes to obeying God's commands, there can be no compromise. Some people come to church on Sunday, but they're not willing to leave their sins behind the rest of the week. They're willing to make a few sacrifices as long as they don't actually have to leave Egypt. But hear what the great Charles Spurgeon reminded us, preached on this point. God's demand is not that his people should have some little liberty, some little rest in their sin. No, but they should go right out of Egypt. 
Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to deliver us from it. He didn't come to make hell less hot or sin less damnable or our lust less mighty, but to put all these things far away from his people to work out a full and complete deliverance. And so he has, friends. You can be delivered from all your sins this morning and walk in complete freedom and new life with Christ if you will but surrender to him in faith. Surrender to God's grace. Jesus said whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you willing this morning to lose your life as you know it in order to find a better life, an infinitely better life, life to the fullest, eternal life in Christ Jesus this morning? I pray that you will listen, confess, repent, and surrender your life to Jesus this morning and be saved.